Hello, this is Michael Canfield, and thank you for joining us today on The Dog Watch. Dog Watch is an evening shift of early or late duty, or the people who undertake it. This Dog Watch considers the natural world and the things that help us experience it, from dogs to watches and everything in between. Ultimately, it's a place to go for wherever curiosity takes us. In his professional context, you might find Tom Place smashing through the windshield of a bus, getting hit by a car, or in all manner of fistfights, gunfights, and falls from the tops of myriad buildings. One would think that somewhere in those activities we could pull on a thread of true crime. However, we have had to look very hard to explore any sinister links. The closest we can get today, talking with Tom on the dog watch, is understanding his love of watches and his search for a Rolex watch he lost decades ago in upstate New York to the bottom of a lake. After Tom lost his watch during a bout of somewhat ill-advised but not uncharacteristic hijinks on a boat, he has spent many days and hours under the surface of the lake methodically searching the muck for his lost timepiece. In our conversation, we discuss Tom's life as a stuntman, his love for watches, and then how he lost the watch and then has gone about searching for it. While it is unlikely that the watch has been stolen from the bottom of the lake, whether by an unwitting fish, an unlikely fisherman, or an uncommonly well-informed scuba diver, we don't entirely rule out any possibilities. In the end, we are left with a dramatic story of the search for a lost love. Hi, Tom. Thanks so much for joining us today on The Dog Watch. Happy to be here. Happy to be here. It's been a uh, long time coming, I feel like. Yeah, well, you know, when when we met uh, in Chicago, like, it's it's been a while and, and really enjoyed meeting you there, but also kind of keeping track of you a little bit um, since then. And, you know, one of the things that's interesting about you and what I'm really hoping to talk to you about is your profession, right? Mm-hmm. What you do for a living is fascinating and want to kind of ask some questions about that. And then this uh, slightly related in the sense that it, it overlaps with watches, but this incredible story about this search you've been doing for your lost Rolex that currently sits somewhere <laughs> at the bottom of a lake. Yes, so, sir. you know, I wonder if you could start off um, maybe just kind of describing a little bit about s- some of the recent uh, movies or TV shows that you've been working on and kind of what that looks like. All right. Uh, so most of uh, this year, um, I was the stunt coordinator for a show called Poker Face. It'll be a a ten part uh, murder mystery series that'll be coming out in January, and that pretty much took me from March through end of September. So that was most of my year. Prior to that, I mean, I'd have to I'd have to look to see what I was working on from January and. In February, but uh, I was in a couple shootouts, a couple high speed chases um, on various, you know, network television shows. <laughs> Just a few things. So, <laughs> so tell me a little bit about that. Like, what does that mean as far as being a stunt person, or however you describe yourself? Like, what's the difference between sort of doing stunts and being a double? Like, how much of it is like you're Keanu Reeves? but Keanu Reeves isn't doing the stunt and how much of it is like you're a separate person that doesn't have a name, but is just like flying through on a motorcycle or whatever, or, or are those things actually different or not? 
Um, I guess it all comes down to how comfortable the actor is, you know, doing these uh, uh, stunts and also what the production will let them get away with. There's certainly a lot of actors who are like, no, I want to ride my own motorcycle. And they're like, no, listen, you have a helmet on. Nobody's going to know it's not you. You know, you can't get injured because then we can't finish our show. So probably the only actor that I know of who actually does all his own stunts is Tom Cruise because he's got the clout to say, I'll just fire the whole stunt department until I get a stunt department that will let me do everything. Um, wow. But uh, like I doubled um, I doubled Alec Baldwin on a couple shows in a row a couple years ago. Um, one of them was a movie called Blind where he plays a blind man um, and he he runs out into the street. He's chasing Demi Moore. Um, and he runs out into the street where he gets hit by a car. So clearly they show the actor, you know, they show Alec, you know, running down the sidewalk. Um, and he, he runs into the street and then you cut to, uh, me, the stunt double, you know, actually getting hit by the car, going up on the hood, the car hits the brakes, I go flying off. <laughs> and then you cut back to Alec Baldwin getting up off the ground. Right. Um, so yeah, it's, it. It all depends on the actor, the production, but it's usually whenever it gets a little hairy, it's usually the stunt guy or, you know, stunt woman so performing. Help me understand a little bit about that, though. Like you so in that situation, you're do you practice that like a number of times and then you do it so you're just running out there and rolling over or does it actually kind of feel like you're getting hit by a car um, that's what I, I'm not really clear about when I think about doing those stunts, how much of it is you're physically just like, not just faking it, but avoiding the collision or whatever. And how much of it is that you're actually in the collision to a certain extent? Right. When you get hit by the car, that's one of those stunts where, you know, it's not going to feel great. There's kind of no way to do like an easy car hit that's looks good and doesn't hurt um the cars are typically typically traveling between 18 and 20 miles per hour and the way that they film that could make it look like it's going 40 or 50 miles per hour so the one i did i was like let's let's you know go for it let's go 21 22 miles per hour and i had to be blind so i couldn't really clock the car as it was coming at me i had to kind of feel it out of my periphery and when you do a car hit it's all about not keeping your feet planted like so at the last minute you kind of start to lean towards the car and kind of lift your feet off the ground. So when the car does make contact, like you're going to roll up the hood and into the windshield rather than have your feet stay planted right. and then your le your legs just get broken. Um, so, yeah, you know, back in the day when I was in my early 20s, I practiced a number of them on like an old beater car that already had a broken windshield and all this stuff. And <laughs> and you train with an older stunt guy who who knows what he's doing. And it's there is a technique to it, you know, so you don't smash your head and... And that kind of stuff. But it's, yeah, uh, there's a bunch of stunts where you just know like, okay, I'm, I'm going to go home a little beat up. And that's one of them. Right. Yeah. So how many of the different stunts in a movie, for example, would you be a part of? In other words, like, so you're doubling Alec Baldwin, et cetera, but some of the stunts m might be more generic or, or like, and, and then enhanced by CGI. So would you do other stunts? in that movie and other characters or in a more of an action film, would you be sort of doing multiple stunts and then they're sort of photoshopping in quote unquote, like a, another character, or is it pretty specific what you're 
um, you, you know, what you're sized for, what your body shapes for or whatever. So if you're working on a show, like when you're the stunt double, you basically get to do all the stunts for that actor. Okay. There could be, I mean, there could be a ton of stunts throughout the whole movie, but they'll give those, you know, to other stunt people. A stunt coordinator will break down a script, say I need doubles for, you know, the lead male, the lead female. There are three, you know, goons in an alleyway. There are two guys in a bar that get into a fight and then he'll hire accordingly. He'll hire the stunt double for the male lead, the stunt double for the female lead, the three goons, you know, will get hired. And then that's generally the team that does the work. Okay. And so can you describe a little bit about what makes a, a good stunt person? Like, what is it? Is it fearlessness? Is it sort of the size and physicality, pain tolerance? Are there any features that you can see like in your colleagues and in yourself? Because some people have got to be really good at it, right? It seems like you're good at this. What characteristics make somebody good at, at that profession? I think definitely um, pain tolerance helps. If you're good at reactions, you could get a lot of work. By that, I mean, if you have to get punched, you could make it look real. So the other guy will be throwing the punch that's not really connecting with your face, but the way you whip your head is completely believable. That's a reaction. You know, getting shot. There are some guys who are stiff, some guys who make it look, you know, real. So reactions are a big part of it. If you come into the business with martial arts, that definitely helps with the fight scenes, but it doesn't mean you're going to be a good stunt driver. It doesn't mean you're going to know how to fall down the stairs properly, you know, without hurting yourself. So I would say, yeah, pain tolerance, good reactions, just listening, always being heads up. And I guess that kind of works for every job. And so a couple other questions, like what's the injury risk like? I mean, it would seem to me like if I were doing that, I'd be terribly afraid that I'd be injured every single day, but obviously you <laughs> couldn't, you, you couldn't make a career out of it if you're injured every single day. Like, is it like something that you just sort of live with that have you had lots of injuries or like over the course of your career or do you are you able to avoid that for the most part the business is definitely geared towards safety when i'm a stunt coordinator rather than being the stunt man so when you're the stunt coordinator you run the stunt department okay i don't want anybody to get hurt i don't want anybody to get hurt period but if you become a stunt coordinator that gets known for like, oh, so-and-so got hurt, so-and-so got hurt working for him, oh, this other person got hurt, you know, you, it's, you don't want that reputation. Yeah, sure. It's all geared towards safety. There's a lot of times where you, you'll get injured working and you just don't tell anybody. Uh, that happens a lot. So I was, I was working on a show called Person of Interest and I had to be hit by a Range Rover, but we weren't allowed to... We weren't allowed to put a scratch in the Range Rover. It was fine to put a scratch in me, but we couldn't put a scratch in the Range Rover. Love that. So I get hooked up to a wire that as soon as the Range Rover gets like within a foot of me, they, they basically yank me, you know, backwards at like the speed of light. It makes it look like I get hit by the car and I go flying down, you know, the parking garage, you know, concrete. And on the third one, I really injured my shoulder. I didn't tell anybody because, you know, you don't, you also don't want to hire guys who seem to always get injured working for you. Right. Yeah. You have to walk the fine line of I'm injured bad enough where I don't think I could go on and I really need to say something or all right, I'm just going to suck it up. I'm going to take the pain for the rest of the night and just hope I don't get any big stunt calls, you know, within the next couple of weeks. And what also helps out is you don't always have a big stunt to do. Every day that you go to work, it's not, you know, falling down the stairs and getting hit by cars. There's a lot of easier days. Like say there's a fight scene in a bar and there's another couple at the bar who's kind of in close proximity of this fight scene going on. Those are probably going to be stunt people. You don't want to put background actors there because if a background actor gets bumped, 
they're just going to ask for stunt pay anyway. So might as well just put stunt people there. And if they get bumped, you know, that's what they're there for. So if you do get, you know, a little beat up on, you know, Monday when you work on Wednesday, you know, it could be an easy day where you're still getting stunt pay. You're still on set as a stunt person, but it's an easier job. And that's, you know, kind of how you could continually, you know, get banged up, but then continue working. Right. Um, but yeah, when I wake up in the morning, it's not exactly a ton of fun, you know, there's, yeah. there's a lot of aches going on. Sure. Just a couple more things about it because it's fascinating. I've never yeah. talked to someone who's done this before and it's, you know, kind of, we consume so much of it and never really, th- or rarely think about it. So do you have some greatest hits, like, or gr- like ones that you look back and are like, that was like such a great stunt to do? Um, yeah, you know what? I'll, I'll probably go with three different, they're not just like one stunt. So it's three different fight scenes. Um, and two of them were for this this Marvel show on Netflix called Daredevil. Okay. And one oh yeah, they were they were all for Marvel's Daredevil, now that I think about it. But the first was a hallway fight scene. It was in the first season. It's it's like a five minute long scene without any cuts, like without any edits. People call it a one take or they call it a oneer, where you roll cameras and you play through all five minutes of the scene without you know changing camera position, anything. The camera's just basically moving with the fight the entire time. Um, and that was a lot of rehearsals. Uh, the producers were like, I don't think like this is going to work out. But we spent, yeah, we spent a long time rehearsing it. And then we spent a nice long day shooting it. And uh, it became a really cool scene and like a pretty well talked about scene. Like you could, you could YouTube, uh, you know, Daredevil hallway fight scene and it'll come up with like, you know, millions of views. So who, who were you? I was, um, it was a fight between Daredevil and like a bunch of Russian goons. Okay. So I probably didn't even have a number. I might be Russian goon number three. I just might be, I just might be Russian goon. There's a bunch of us that are playing cards and Daredevil, uh, he breaks into one of the rooms in this hallway and we all kind of shuffle out of the room and then, you know, chaos ensues. And, uh, um, yeah, there's like a, you know, three to five minute fight scene that ensues. Um, and then... Uh, the next one, I'm trying to think of like of just a one stunt hardest hit thing that I could. Or like, did you fly through a bus window? Did you? Yes, <laughs> you know I, what I, I mean, mean like... yeah. There you go. I flew through a bus window. Um, uh, as another superhero show, I get thrown out of the bus uh, windshield, and I was doubling an actor, and they're about to roll cameras, and they're like, "Tom, you got to take your watch off." And I go, "No, no, no, I got to wear my watch." And they're like, "No, no, no, the actor doesn't have a watch." And I go, well, have we seen the actor on camera yet? And they're like, no, not yet. So I go, well, then can props give him a wristwatch so I could wear my watch when I get thrown through? And they usually would never care about that ever. And it just worked out that night. And they were like, go give the actor a watch. And I got to wear my watch. And I went through the windshield of, uh, yeah, the bus. What, what, what watch was it? Do you remember? It was a Torgoin, which is like a little Swiss. I, I don't even know if... It's a micro brand. They make like a lot of quartz uh, yeah. stuff, but I was the best, uh, the best man at my, at my buddy's wedding. And that was my gift. And I was like, I'm going to wear this in as many movies and shows, you know, as possible. Yeah. I've heard and, you uh, talk about that process. We'll talk about that, like about wanting to place, um, the, uh, watches and movies. So we'll, we'll get to that for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, so any other last ones before I, I, I want one more stunt question, but, um, I'd probably say the, there was a jail cell fight scene. This is again Daredevil, um, where we all fight the Punisher. It's like me and a me and a dozen or so stunt guys, and he just 
he goes through everybody. He shanks. He shanks like everybody. He cuts my throat, and my face is all bloody, and I fall onto his uh, chest. And when he rolls me off at the end of the scene, it's like my bloody skull is on his chest, and that's kind of where the Punisher gets his uh, the skull, uh, the skull emblem. Oh, really? Which I was like, oh, cool, it's my face, neat. But that was another fight scene that was, you're talking it out like on day one of rehearsals, and it's like, holy cow, like they're they're really taking on a lot here. Yeah. And um, yeah, and then just with a lot of rehearsals, and then an a real long shoot day. Uh, we got it and it was great. So very proud of those. If people wanted to see some of this, mm-hmm. like, so this is Daredevil and w- how would, how would you sort of focus in on like which season or, you know what I mean? Like how would we find those th- things? Uh, let's see. If you Google Daredevil hallway fight scene, you'll probably get that first one. And then the next one I think is season two, episode nine. And you just got to fast forward until you see the Punisher just killing a bunch of guys in prison. And then um, I'm the final guy that comes out and I kick him in the face and I punch okay. him and then he gouges my eye out and, it, you know, awesome. go from there. All right. <laughs> but <laughs> Well, that's exciting. Uh, you know, it's not something that I think many of us probably, I, don't, I can't speak for all the listeners, but, you know, it, it, it seems like it could be fun once or twice, you know? Oh yeah, um, but like no doubt, I, I could see how taking you know doing it for a living would would take some persistence. But and that kind of brings me to my last stunt question, and mm-hmm. kind of wanted to, to to introduce you as far as your professional side. Like, how did it happen that Tom ended up being a long term stunt person? You have a stunt like coordinator, you're a stunt coordinator. You've done tons of stunts. Like, how did that happen? Like, how does one become that you don't exactly go to school for it, right? You like you would do kind of somehow get into this industry. So, so how did that happen for you? So my brother does it well. My brother Chris is also a stunt man and a stunt coordinator. He's a year and a half younger than me. So starting at like, I mean, honestly, when he was four and I was five or six, we borrowed my dad's video camera and we started making our own home movies in the basement, like with GI Joe action figures, wow. and then and then it became. We would videotape each other reenacting scenes from Rambo and other action movies. And then, you know, when we were seven, eight, nine, ten, we started getting together with our friends and we started making, you know, 10 minute action movies with, you know, like police officer foot chases and then a tackle and then there's a fight scene. And by the time we got to high school, we were making like hour long action movies and like at the end of the school year, we would ask uh, the teachers, like, can you please you know, put our movies on? And everybody always loved them and they loved all the stunts. And it was like, whoa, this is th- this is kind of cool, you know. Uh, but I always wanted to be a cop uh, growing up. I always I just wanted to be a cop when I got older. And I went to school for criminal justice and then decided to change, you know, course. And I just got a mass communications uh, degree. And after I graduated college, me and my brother were talking and it was like, you know what? Before we go into the real world, why don't we give, you know, the film industry a shot? Because we've always enjoyed it. It's always been part of us. And then it was like, what what would the most fun aspect of making movies be? And, you know, we were rugby players. We were dirt bikers. We played baseball, football. We had been falling on the ground our whole lives. It was like, let's be stuntmen. I mean, what's more fun than that? And that's kind of how we kind of set the tone for, okay, this is, this is what we want to do. You know, I was... We were both early 20s. It was like, this is what we want to do. And my wife, Allie, uh, just happened to be Googling like uh, stunt schools. And there was one in Florida and I had gone to college in Florida and it was like, wait a second, there's a stunt school an hour away from us in Orlando, Florida. 
And it was five weeks of intensive uh, training. You learn how to fight for camera. You learn how to do high falls. Like, so I did up to 60 feet, um, high falls into an airbag. You get comfortable with guns. Um, 60 feet? So, yeah, yeah. So that was wow. what I was most afraid of. I was like, you know, I'm not, I'm not afraid of heights, but I, I like to say I'm afraid of falling from heights. Yeah, no. Because that's, um, that's like so six you, stories, right? Or something. No, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Uh, so you start at you know, 10 or 15 feet. And it's like, okay, this is nothing. And then you move up to 20 and it's like, whoa, the airbag doesn't look as big from 20 feet. And then you get comfortable at 20, you move up to 30, you know, 40, 50, 60. And then before you know it, like you're jumping off like it's nothing. And that became, that's what I was most afraid of at stunt school. And that probably became one of the most fun things that I did there was just, you know, climbing up to 60 feet and, and jumping off. Wow. But uh, yeah. And then after that, it was, you know, there's a starving, a starving actor phase where I was getting married. I was, I was pumping gas. I was working construction, trying to get the bills paid, trying to get your name out there in the business, which is very hard. And then it, it just so happened that my dad was mentioning something at work. And one of the guys at work was like, Hey, I have a, like a friend of a friend of a friend of a retired stunt guy, if you want his phone number. And then through him, you get more current stunt guys phone numbers right. and you chat with them and eventually we started like getting invited onto sets like just to kind of see how things work and then eventually you find somebody that that gives you a shot yeah and if you do a wow. good job you know you get another call and if you keep doing you know performing well then the calls keep coming and yeah that's kind of that's kind of the path it was a long road wow. you know don't get me wrong i spent yeah. a lot of years you know looking at my bank accounts online and just being like i, I don't i don't know how i'm making it work this month and then like you finally get that call or two at the end of the month and like you're able to make it work. And um, yeah, but here I am. Yeah, it's really interesting you s said that. And when you're describing kind of what you did with your friends and your brother when you're younger, it's it might be easy, I would think, for people to kind of conflate that with some of the other stuff that i don't know when it really came about but people like doing really stupid stuff especially physical stuff mm -hmm. and you know like stuff that's not advisable that's not a stunt but just like stupid whatever you know there i think there were there was some shows i can't remember the name of them like the jackass uh, yeah sorry show. that's what it is like that yeah, stuff, so we, right? we were basically jackass but with a little more structure and i guess a little safer right but when we watched those movies, it was like, wait a second, these guys are getting paid how much for this? Like, yeah, this, this could have been us. Yeah, but it seems like there was a different <laughs> point to it, right? Like you were, and I guess it's sort of a question, right? Mm -hmm. My sense in hearing you was that like the point that you guys were trying to make movies about stunts, right? Yeah. Like, or, or make a movie that had stunts in it that was like a story. The Jackass and those other things were about the stunts and how dangerous slash stupid a stunt you could do and still survive it seemed yeah, like right. that was kind of the premise which which are pretty different things um yes. and it seems like you were able to then parlay that into a professional you know activity where you can mm -hmm. actually really do those stunts and make it look like somebody's actually experiencing those things um which is which is super cool um one last i, I said that was my last question but i do have one <laughs> quite <more>. all right <laughs> so you know you're a, you, you have a lot of experience in stunts, a lot of in cinema, um, television shows, et cetera. 
what would your recommendations be for like the best movies that you know like what movies do you like but also like if somebody really likes stunts and action etc what do you feel like are are there any recommendations that you'd be like oh mike you gotta watch x y or z that these are these are like awesome stunt movies or movies with not just special effects but like from a stuntman's perspective like that you would recommend or that you really enjoy watching good question um I was more prepared for this. I would say to give the John Wick movies a watch. Okay. Because when it comes to driving and fighting, I watch some of those movies and I'm like, how do they even do this? Because I know how I know how difficult it is to do yeah. those scenes, and they have so many of these scenes and you know packed into one movie, and they're so complex. So the John Wick movies are great. I don't know if anybody's ever seen Hooper. Okay. Uh, which is, it's Burt Reynolds plays a stuntman in it. This one's going back. Oh, yeah. And not, not that it's, wow, they do some crazy stunts, but like the whole movie is just people doing stunts. Like they go to a stunt, you know, carnival, and there's people falling off of horses and crashing motorcycles left, <laughs> left and right. It's just like, like, oh, this movie would have been amazing to work on because it's just stunt guys doing stunts and it was directed by a stunt coordinator. I probably hate to say it, but like the Fast, uh, the Fast and Furious movies, I don't really watch. I mean, there's so many of them. I've only, I probably watched less than half of them. But the driving is so complex in those movies. It's really impressive to see what what the stunt driving teams are able to pull off. Are those separate teams? Would the driving sort of people be separate from uh, like people that do fights, or, or do people overlap? On a movie of that scale, they probably have multiple units going on like there'd be like a driving unit that's it's probably a stunt coordinator directing and just a whole bunch of stunt guys and they're filming all the driving sequences like without any actors it's just all the stunt guys and there's probably another unit that's rehearsing and working on the fights with different stunt doubles like if vin diesel has a driving double he's also got a fight double okay two different guys so you also like aside from you know, all the stunt work you do, et cetera, are super into watches. And that kind of is going to lead us to this question of this this watch that's at the bottom of the lake, et cetera. But, <laughs> you know, you had described in another interview that I'd heard with you, and then you just mentioned about, you know, trying to get watches into into scenes, et cetera. So where did the watch thing start for you? And how, how have you gotten into watches? What's your kind of collection like? And, um, you know, along with, but aside from this, uh, the, the watches that, that the story is really about. Um, how'd you get into watches? Um, so I, I borrowed my sister's Snoopy watch, which was a little hand wine mechanical, you know, uh, which I still have. But I was about four years old, the first time that I ever wore it. And I remember going out to dinner and just like winding the watch. Like a half hour would go by and I'd try to get one more click out of that wine. Because I I just love that, you know, and I didn't know how to tell the time, but I could keep this thing going. Like as long as I keep winding this, like this watch is never going to stop, you know, according to what my dad told me. But And then after that, I ended up getting, um, I guess my first real watch was a Swatch watch. By the time I graduated, you know, graduated, uh, air quotes, uh, fifth grade, so elementary school, I probably, I had a handful of watches. Um, then when I was 10, I desperately wanted this. It was a gold-plated Seiko world timer, and it was three, like 325 bucks. And I begged my parents, like, if I could come up with half the money, you know, from doing chores and whatever my savings was at the time, can you guys come up with the other half, you know, for my birthday 
and you could make it part of my Christmas present, you know, all that stuff. So I just, I've, I've always loved watches. It's not, I'm not about what's popular and what people are telling me I should like on all the watch blogs. It's just what I like, you know, what I see. And even if no one else likes it, if that's what I like, that's what, you know, that's what I'm going to want in my collection. But yeah, so it's, it's, it's been a lifelong yeah. A lifelong thing. So what do you like? I mean, what what are your go-to or what are the things that you kind of most gravitate toward? I have a lot of uh, divers. Almost Most of my watches are divers. I like a rugged watch that I could do all my hobbies and activities in without, without you know, giving it a second thought. But I remember reading about Grand Seiko in the 90s, and I don't really recall where I got like my watch content because there was no internet back then. There were no forums um, in, you know, late eighties and early nineties. I think I would just look through, you know, catalogs and I would see watches and I would go to stores and just talk to the salesman about uh, the watches like that I saw in movies. And if they knew what, you know, what guys were wearing and all that. Love Seiko. I love Tudor. I do have a Panerai. I've owned three Panerai the first one I got was in 2004, kind of when they first started getting big. The ones that I owned after that were, one was made in 2010, one was like 2015, and they just weren't, they weren't very quality, I guess you could say. While I love my Panerai, that was my wedding watch. I told my wife, like, if I'm buying you this ring and uh, the wedding band, like, I'm going to need a watch. And it's, <laughs> and it's got to be the watch that Sylvester Stallone wore in the movie Daylight that I saw in 96 and needed that watch ever since then. That's um, hilarious. But, I, I mean, I've got everything. You know, I have a Weiss. I, yeah. have, I have a couple of Vostoks and a Polio from, uh, from Russia. Um, sure. I, I don't know if anybody remembers the brand Sector. I don't even know if they're around anymore. A bunch of Casios. I've got like seven or eight G-Shocks. I don't know. I If I see a watch and I'm like, oh, wow, look at this watch. I love it. Tell me about the the Rolex in question. So I was 18. I was in college in Florida. Uh, they had a jewelry store down there that had, you know, Omega, Rolex and Tudor, all this stuff. This was, I guess it was 1995 when I started going into the mall. I kind of decided, like, think I need a Rolex. My dad always had a Rolex. He, he hit some success in the late 70s, and he bought him and my mom matching Rolexes. And that's like that was his one watch for okay. the next 20 years. He painted the house in that watch. He worked on the shed. He, it was a gold day-date presidential. He went scuba diving in that watch. Wow. He would change the oil on the car in that watch. <laughs> he would mow the lawn in that watch. Like, and I think I kind of grew up just knowing, like, oh, you don't, you don't take your watch off for anything, which is when I started wearing watches, you just I just never took my watch off because... That's just not what you do. And so I always knew I wanted a Rolex. And so here I am, a valet car attendant, and I got a stack of ones and fives and tens in my closet, <laughs> you know, and I got a little bit of savings from like when I was a kid in high school and I got a couple savings bonds from when I was a kid. And I was like, I think I need a Rolex. And I remember going in and I saw the Tudor sub and I was like, whoa, I think it was like 990 bucks. And I was like, whoa, wait a second. I could get, could get a Tudor for 990 bucks and it's almost like a Rolex. And then I remember talking to my dad and he was like, nah, I, you don't want a tutor. You don't want a tutor. He didn't want me to get the Rolex either, but he didn't want me to get a tutor. <laughs> and then, yeah, it was in between uh, the GMT Master 2 and the Submariner. And I went with the Submariner and I had to ship it to my parents who were back in Jersey so I could save money on sales tax. I couldn't afford to pay the sales tax on it. And then when I went up to Jersey you know, for one of the holidays, I was able to get it. But uh, yeah, so that was the watch. I still have the calendar that I had up in my dorm room and it's some date in February, 1996. And it says first real watch, like a picture of the Rolex crown on there. And then, uh, yeah, fast forward to that summer. We have a cabin that's up on a lake here in the Adirondack Mountains in New York State. It's up. It's not on Lake George, but it's a lake near Lake George. My brother and I used to do this thing called power jumping, 
um, which is going to sound like a jackass, you know, kind of stunt where you go as fast as the boat can go and then you jump off and it hurts, but you're laughing and everybody's having a good time and you see how fast you could go and jump. And, and I, I just end up slipping and the clasp catches something either on the railing or the side of the boat. And it's not a very big boat. It's a center console. Kind of looks like a Boston Whaler, but it's like a knockoff Boston Whaler. And I'm falling back into the water and the the bracelet just pops. And I see the watch careen off to the side. And I'm while I'm falling back, I'm trying to reach for it. And it goes under and I go under. And I'm just trying to swim around in the dark, trying to reach for anything that might be falling. And uh, yeah, so that was that's how I lost it. And that wow. was uh, the summer... 1996, I was 18 years old. I have a picture from that week of me holding the watch up on the beach. I was so proud of it. So how long did you have the watch? I had it for about six months. Okay. And so you wore and, it a lot. Uh, that, was, that was like, yeah, that be, became my everyday watch. I'm sure a lot of people are going to go, why would you even wear that watch in the water? Why are you jumping off a boat with that watch on? But I had never lost a watch up to that point. So it didn't even occur to me that I might lose a watch. Right. Because it had... My entire life, since I'm four years old, I'm wearing watches and, you know, uh, never lost one in a lake prior. So yeah. I just wasn't even thinking like, oh, maybe, you know, we're doing something a little crazy. Maybe I'll take it off. Wasn't wasn't even thinking that. So that's why it was on the wrist. So um, I dragged a magnet for hours a day for like a week. And I actually, to this day, don't even know if a magnet would have even picked up a stainless steel watch. I think I've tried to put a magnet on stainless steel and it doesn't really work on most of them. Hmm. So I don't know if it would have even picked it up, but I, I dragged the magnet, uh, you know, back then, you know, nobody I knew scuba dived. Right. So it was just kind of, it was kind of lost. So where were you in the lake? How, how do you know where, because I think this is relevant to where we're going, like mm-hmm. you were like driving back and forth in, in this boat <laughs> incredibly fast. And then, you know, the thing pops off, you're swimming or whatever. How did you locate where you were or remember where you were didn't you really like know exactly where you were in the lake so there are two landmarks in the lake there are these boulders the lake in one point goes from like 40 feet and it goes all the way up until these boulders pierce uh, the surface and we call that uh, the rocks it's like oh the rocks you know if you're out in the boat just watch out for the rocks so i know where i was in relation to the rocks and then there's also a small island on the lake. So, you know, I could kind of triangulate. I mean, my memory is over 20 years old at this point. But to the best of my knowledge, I remember where I was in relation to the shore, the rocks, and the island. Okay. So I feel like I have a pretty good, I call it the search zone. I, f- I feel like I have a pretty good idea where I lost that watch. And I don't know. I guess I'll find out over the next, I'll be 65 still searching the search zone. Who knows? But uh I think I got a good idea. Okay, so you've got this search zone, which mm-hmm. you kind of identified. This was back in 96 or whatever, you're dragging the magnet, right? Mm-hmm. Didn't come up, like that was right at the time. What happened after that, and, and how's that arc of exploration gone from, you know, when you were just like, oh God, I've got to find this thing right after the fact, to like now it's what, you know, 30 years later, or whatever it is. <laughs> I'm that old, huh? Um, you and so, me both. Yeah, it happens, <laughs> <laughs> but or maybe young. You know, like uh, right, a lot of life right. Left. I still feel good. You no, know, I'm forty-four. Yeah, you're, still you're only forty-four. Wow, you're, you've got like you've got many years. So, so after about a week of dragging that magnet, not really knowing any scuba divers, what was I going to do? It was 
between 20 and 30 feet deep at that point. I probably could have gone down for like a second or two, but it's just absolutely muck on the bottom. It's it's disgusting. If anything dropped down, it's out of sight. It's not going to be laying on the muck. It's going to sink into it. So you kind of chalk it up to a loss. And I wrote a letter to Rolex and I said, I'm an 18 year old kid. I was swimming in a lake. I guess I could put it out there now, but I didn't, I didn't tell them about, you know, jumping off the boat and stuff. I just told them that the watch popped off my wrist while I was swimming. And I didn't ask for anything. I just said, you know, like you might want to beef up your spring bars. You might want to beef up your clasp because I don't know what broke, but now my watch is gone. And I got a letter back from Rolex headquarters in uh, the U.S. and uh, they said to give them a call. So I, I gave them a call. It was a New York number. And they said, since we can't prove that the watch malfunctioned, they can't just give me a new one, but they gave me nearly half off of a brand new one of my choice. And there was no time limit, like not like you got to tell me right now what you want. It was even, you know, 10 years down the road, like you could cash this in whenever. And I immediately called up my dad. I called up my friends. I need to borrow money. And I ended up getting um, the GMT Master II. I got a Pepsi, uh, sorry, I got a Coke uh, the black and red bezel GMT Master II. Okay. So that would have been in the fall of 1996. So this all took place in 96. And once I had that other Rolex on the wrist, I just kind of chalked up the one that I lost to, like, I'm never finding it. Because I know what, what that muck is like on the bottom of the lake. I'm never finding it. So fast forward to, I get dive certified in 2014 or 15. My best buddy, who's also a stunt guy, uh, this guy, Greg, He's a master diver. He's a dive instructor. And I were chatting one night over a couple of scotches. And, and he's like, why haven't you you know been diving for this watch? And I'm like, you don't know what the bottom looks like on this lake. And then we just started chatting about, here are some tools that uh, you could use down in the muck. And I got another buddy that's into metal detecting. So I'm like, you know what? Let's, let's put a little team together here. And I think I called it Oceanic Expedition 16610. And then, you know, I was like, this is crazy. <laughs> I'm just going to call it Expedition 16610. And just as a joke. And so we started chatting about it and like, okay, this is what we're going to do. And my buddy, he was able to source me a couple metal detectors. And I mean, I've since, I have so many metal detectors now that uh, the cost of them doubles what I paid for the watch originally. Like I have so much more money invested in the search at this point than that watch cost me at the time. But that's kind of how it started. Like, okay, you know what? Maybe, maybe we can go down there. And it was like, well, how do we grid out the bottom of a lake? And I spoke to uh, the owner of my dive shop this guy, Al, and he was he was mentioning his little search marker buoys. And I was like, yeah, so if, if I make a little search marker buoy and I put the date on it and I tie a rope and I weight it and I kind of float it just off the bottom where it's not going to interfere with anybody on that lake, you know, it's it's all the way at the bottom. It's just above the muck and the weeds. And that way I'll know what, what areas I've searched, you know, prior. So, right. yeah, I mean, there's, I don't know exactly the number of dives I have down there, but there's 20, 30, whatever markers that are down there. Some of them overlap at this point. So we're getting there, you know? So do you have a map? I do have a map. Um, Of like where your buoys are or where you need to search or do you... I've got a folder. It's like file folder. I was working on it at the table one night and my wife saw it. I was like, what are you in the FBI? What is that? I'm like, no, this this is the expedition folder, honey. They have a couple of maps of the lake and every time I come up, I mark the approximation of, you know, where that dive was and uh, the length you know, water temp, all that stuff, like a regular dive log, but with, with uh, the locations and if I found anything. And yeah, so I'm slowly chipping away at my search zone where when you're in the boat above the water, it seems, you know, so doable. It's like, oh, this, we're going to do this. And then you get down there and you're just, you're wrapped up in the muck and the weeds. And, and it takes you about an hour to search a five foot, you know, circle around that little search marker buoy. Wow. And you're like, oh man, I'm, I'm going to be like a 70-year-old dude still trying to scuba dive and 
find this watch. This is going to take forever. But every time you get a hit on the metal detector, like the heart starts going and it's like this, this could be it. This could be it. But, and what, what else do you find? Like when it's a hit, do you find like old beer cans or like forks or what, what other stuff do you pull up? Um, so, so fortunately out of, out of all my dives going back to, we started the expedition in 2019 and then we had some, we had some boat troubles. It sunk at the dock. So it was, it was, I was like, I was like, it's been 20 whatever years. It's the same boat. Okay. Same exact boat. Yeah. Um, I'm like, you screwed me again, boat. But so I've really been diving since 2020 for the watch. So 2020 (laughs) is really when 16610 really got going. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yes. It was supposed to get going in 2019. Major boat issues. I think I dove once or twice, but it was like a, yeah, it was, it was a pain in the butt. I needed the boat. So it starts in 2020, which was quarantine. Uh, you know, COVID hit. Um, the film industry shut down. I was home for six and a half months with, without a single day of work. My wife, who's in real estate, was busier than ever because everybody from New York was moving out to New Jersey. And that's sure. where we live in New Jersey. So here's my wife, swamped at home, busier than ever. And then she looks out the window <laughs> and I'm sipping my coffee and I'm bird watching and I'm writing in a journal what, you know, what I'm looking at. And she finally came out one day and was like, you got to get out of here. Just take the kids up to the lake and just, you know, go have fun. And that's basically what we did. We would do like two week stints at a time and then we would go home and, you know, hang with the wife for a week. And then my wife would come up here. And, but so we spent a lot of time, me and my kids, I have two daughters. Uh, we spent a lot of time up here and I would just dive as, as often as possible. Um, and that's what really kicked it right. off. Is that where yeah. you are now? You're, are you at the lake? That's where I am now. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So you're not far from it. You're probably like, I mean, from the watch, like you're probably. Oh no. Oh yeah. I could. I could. I mean, it's dark now, but when I'm sitting in the seat that I am, I could see just past the rocks to where the watch is down right. there. Right. You know. So yeah, it's. So have you pulled up other stuff when the when the you know metal detector goes off? Is there? Oh other right. That's junk yeah. That's where we were. Like you find. We were or? chatting about. Um. So I the the coolest things I found. I guess I found two anchors. Oh. Okay. Which were pretty neat. I really thought I would find a lot more than I have. But fortunately, I think out of all my hits, which is probably like 100 hits, out of all my hits, only twice I haven't been able to find the object, even down to the smallest little quarter-inch screw. Wow. So, you know, if I could find a screw or if I could find a tiny fish hook, I could find a watch, you know? So so I found the two anchors. Um, I found... Oof, I found like 30 feet of heavy chain. Yeah, that was something, trying to get that to the surface. Uh, <laughs> it wasn't easy. I found a pair of sunglasses. I, I found a lot, of, a lot of beer cans. Yeah. I guess they would date back to the 70s, like with the church key openings, where you needed the little, little tool to open it up, and, and then the beer cans with a pull tab. And they're actually a pretty thick metal, which is why I think they've lasted so long. Um, there might be other stuff down there, you know, bottles and all this stuff, but because I have metal detectors, I'm not really finding anything that doesn't have any metal in it. I found an old wooden rowboat. I came across, I came, uh, the metal detector was going crazy and it ended up being uh, the ore shackle that was calcified over. It was the size of a softball, the softball of like this big calcium, you know, ball. I'm like, what, what the heck is this? And I ended up basically uncovering by moving all the weeds. It was an old wooden rowboat. Which was pretty cool, but um, and I dubbed it the SS Rolex, so that's what that is <laughs> down on the bottom. 
but so when you're down there like one are you using tanks or you're using a a, a tube up to the boat i i think i heard you talk about this that yeah you some set, so i started up. yes i started with tanks which just which just became a pain in the butt it was like a half hour to the dive shop and the tanks would really limit my bottom time because it's only 20 feet i mean you could essentially stay down there for hours if you wanted to which i don't because it gets gets a little too cold and you also just get exhausted down there it's just gross yeah um so then yeah uh 2021 i guess or maybe the end of 2020 i invested in a hookah system which is basically it's like a lawnmower engine that's attached to an air compressor that will pump air through a 70 foot hose you know down to you underwater and um while i guess it's not as cool as you know scuba diving it's so convenient um it's worked flawlessly and it it's really sped up uh my time of you know, carrying that down to the boat and uh, and going. Because so I don't really need to wear, uh, when you go scuba diving, you wear your tanks hooked up to uh, your BC, which is your buoyancy control device, which is basically like a vest that you inflate and you deflate with air, like to keep your buoyancy in the water. But for what I'm doing, I basically overweight myself. So I sink to the bottom and I could just lay on the bottom and work, which, which works better with uh, the hookah system. It's just, um, it's been extremely convenient. And is there anybody topside? Uh, not really. So you just go on your own. So, so twenty twenty. Yes, and this is probably controversial, but back when I started, uh, you know, diving, I always had a buddy, and then just the more proficient that I got at this kind of routine, you know, just going to the bottom, dropping my little, uh, my little search marker buoy, and getting to it. It was like, you know what? I'm gonna. I think I'm gonna go out alone today because I don't have a buddy here with me, whether it's my cousin. Or my brother, you know, nobody's around. Right. So, uh, yeah, and yes, there's there's increased risk, but um, I always go through everything in my head. Okay, if I run out of air in my tank, well, I mean, which I've got my gauges, but if I'm hookah diving and all of a sudden that thing shuts off, what steps am I going to take to get back to the surface, you know, safely? You can't just hold your breath and go to the surface. You'll, you know, you'll pop along. Um, yeah. Oh, so really, at twenty feet? Uh, yeah, you're twenty feet even. Wow. Okay. Um, so, uh, yeah, a lot of dives are solo dives. Um, I've gotten quite comfortable with it. Um, uh, do you ever get freaked out down there? <laughs> I try not to, but yeah, there are times, um, when you do it's, you can find a couple pictures online on my Instagram account of, of what some of the weeds look like. Yeah. And you're just, you're descending, you know, down the anchor line and it's just all these big red weeds that are like 15 feet tall and you're just going down into the middle of them and they're wrapping around you. And you know, you know, there's no sea monster down there, but like, what if there is like, what, what if there's something down here I've never seen before? Um, so yes, it definitely gets creepy. Uh, once you start to work in that muck, it's so silty that you have absolutely no visibility. So everything is by feel. Uh, like you can't even see your watch in front of your face unless you really put it up to the glass or you wait till the silt, you know, kind of dies down. The metal detectors, both, both audible and also visual, uh, with the lights on it. And it also vibrates. So if I can't okay. see the lights, which happens, and if I can't hear it for some reason, like because I'm exhaling a breath, I can still feel that thing vibrate, but it gets pretty creepy. Like when I found one of the anchors, um, I had no idea that it was attached to like 30 feet of anchor line, which 
I don't know how it happened because the anchor was in front of me and I was laying down, but the anchor line wrapped all around my legs and all of a sudden I couldn't, you know, move my legs. And then you start thinking like, what is wrapping around my legs? <laughs> is there something behind me? Is it weeds? Is it pulling me under? Um, and then you just kind of like, okay, stop. You know, like you can't see anything. So you just kind of lay there. You just breathe. Yeah. Okay. It's just fine. I'm fine. I, I know exactly where I am. You know, yeah. nothing bad is happening. <laughs> Let me get my knife. Let me cut this, uh, you know, rope off and, yeah. okay, I'm good. But yes, so I do get, uh, to answer your question, I do get freaked out down there sometimes. Yeah, I mean, it seems like anytime, especially when you get tired or whatever, people, when a person gets tired or whatever, that's just sort of psychologically, it's just, it's just easier to be on high alert or, or to get a little bit spooked mm -hmm. by stuff or whatever. So I, I've, I think I would find that a challenge. When you imagine the idea of like, okay, finding it, Right. And let's be positive here. When I still get the chills. Like, yeah, when I have the chills right now when you said right. that. Yeah. When you yeah. find this thing, what do you imagine it's going to look like? What are the options for the condition? Like, is it going to be like, you're going to drag it back up to the surface and kind of wipe it off. And it's like, it's kind of good as new, or is it like a crusty calcified shell or is it still, does it have integrity? Is the, is the movement still okay? Or is it, rotted out like what what do you think you're going to find i think it's going to be i think it's going to be in great shape i think i want to say it, i mean this is just all speculation but i feel like it was the clasp that probably you know busted like the little the little spring bar that holds a bracelet to the clasp i feel like something like that is probably what gave i think after 30 25 years whatever it is i'm sitting in that brown muck it's probably going to have some some discoloration but I really feel like I'll bring it up to the surface. And of course, after it's adequately photographed, because I want like an ad, like a Rolex ad in Watch oh, Time magazine. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, I think I'll shake it. And I think the second hand will start running. You know, I really do. It's, it's, it's only sitting in 20 to 30 feet of water. It's very cold down there. Um, oh, I guess that's more for preserving wood, uh, the coldness. But uh, there's no salt. I think it'll be all right. All right. Have you ever wondered if someone learned about this and then went down there and stole it? <laughs> uh, Have you so, ever worried about this? Or, or Yeah. Oh, no. Yeah. The whole little association of cabins here on this end of the lake, they all knew about it. They've all talked about it over the years. Like, hey, you ever going to find that watch? Every time I see somebody fishing out there, I always keep an eye on them to see if they get super elated about something. I always keep a pair of binoculars. <laughs> Like this is, this is like my whole life because I want to see if somebody pulls this Rolex out of the water and I'm going to drive my boat out there and go, hey, you know, this is a crazy story. But um, but I also um, when I wrote my letter to Rolex and I said, hey, I lost my watch, they took down the serial number. And if anybody brings that watch in for service, I'll be contacted. Yeah. And and that hasn't happened yet. So that that leads me to believe that uh, if it's not, you know brown and covered with algae and sitting in somebody's draw because they never bought in for service I, it's it's got it's got to be down there you know yeah and either way you'll get them like if they pull, if somebody else pulls it up you'll find right. that person and you'll get the watch right you know what i mean i feel like that's pretty pretty clear a couple more things have you enlisted other experts who like do research or anything like that in these lakes and ask them about like are, is there anybody does something similar um anything like that or or is that not really helpful um, so to answer the question, no, I have not 
contacted anybody like that. I have spoken to uh, the rescue divers in uh, the FDNY. Oh, okay. And, you know, question them about uh, when there's a shooting and somebody throws, you know, the gun in the East River, how do you find it? <laughs> that you <know>? never happens. <laughs> <laughs> Not in New York. Um, so, yeah. So I, I have spoken to experts in, you know, scuba diving and search and rescue and, you know, finding metal objects in the bottom of, you know, lakes and rivers. So I have spoken to those kind of experts and that's, and that's kind of where I developed like my, my routine, I guess, and how I'm, you know, searching and how I'm kind of, how I'm kind of gritting out uh, the bottom. Yeah. But as far as, yeah, you know, like contacting somebody who has expertise in lakes and, and lake bottoms and stuff. No, I haven't. That, that, that could be, that could be an avenue to, to look into. Okay. Another quick question. As far as like, you going down, you're doing this basically on your own, right? What would you feel if like you got a team together, right? Would you ever want to like get a team together and get like a, a bigger group to go down and, and speed up the pace, knowing that somebody might, somebody else might be the one who would get the beep and get the watch? Obviously you would arrange that you would keep it, but like, or do oh, right. you want to be the one that actually pulls it out of the market? Oh, no, no. You know, if, um, on quite a few of my dives, there's been three of us down there. Okay. Um, no, if if a buddy of mine finds the watch, we we still found the watch. You know, mission accomplished. Um, doesn't have to be me. If if there's a guy out there fishing tomorrow and he pulls it up, um, I'm going to be happy because we found the watch. You know. Okay. okay. Yeah. It doesn't have to be me. Will it be amazing to you know to get that hit? And reach in the muck and search and then, you know, feel that watch case. Yes, of course. But no, I don't, I don't have to be the one to find it. And, um, I think it's more fun when I'm out there with a couple guys. Um, yeah, it's, it's, you know, more of, it feels more of an, like more of an expedition. Okay. Just, just a couple quick more questions. You're super kind with your time and really helped us understand so much about what you're <laughs> up to. So do you still have the, the, um, the Rolex that you bought, the the second one, not the uh, the Coke. Do you still have that and wear it? So that's my one regret in this whole watch thing. I oh, sold no. it after 22 years. I sold it in 2018. Okay. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Um, like not why well, from a judgment place, but like what led yeah. to that? So I've never been into vintage, you know, Rolex or vintage watches. Um, I'm always into the watches that are newer and current that I could actually go and, you know, wear diving. Like I don't need to go buy a 1968, you know, Rolex and then, oh, but I can't even wear it in the rain. Like I'm, I'm not interested in that. Um, so one of my buddies told me in like early 2018 or maybe 2017, he's like, do you know what you could get for that GMT master? And I was like, what are you talking about? Like what, like 3000? And he's like, no, dude, like the Rolex market is insane, which I kind of knew, but I didn't really know the vintage end of it. And when I, I, I just kind of looked into it and I was offered 9,500 for a, a watch that cost me 3,500. And I felt like, I mean, I've gotten 22 years out of this. Uh, was it 22 years? Yeah. Yeah. 22 years. I was like, yeah, I've got, you know, I've gotten my use out of this watch. Let me, uh, let me sell it. And I sold it and I bought a brand new Submariner, 2018 Submariner. 
which has like the bigger case, you yep. know, ceramic uh, bezel. It, it's, I mean, it's a beast of engineering. It's it's like a tour de force of engineering, but uh, it was heavier. It just wasn't the same. Like it didn't jingle jangle on my wrist, like <laughs> like my old one. And my wife even said one day, she goes, I kind of missed your old watch because I knew what room of the house you were in because I could hear it jingle jangle and like whenever you'd shake your wrist. And I was like, oh, that's kind of funny. Uh, so I immediately sold uh, the 2018 sub after just a couple months and I was able to buy a 1997 GMT Master. Okay. Um, but yes, unfortunately, uh, yeah, I sold that watch after 22 years. I should have never done it. Um, th that's why I don't like to sell my watches. I really, I really don't sell many of them. And, you know, that was the biggest, uh, you know, regret. Once you find the other one, right, that's in the lake, <laughs> like, have, I think yeah. you'll feel good. That's right. Um, so how can people follow along? Uh, you could follow along um, at Expedition 16610. I post a few stunt pictures, mostly diving and adventure pictures, you know, looking for the watch. Then, of course, after dive season ends at the end of the summer, you know, you'll see more watch-based, you know, content than it's not just diving for the Rolex. It's just things, you know, based around uh, stunts, watches, and adventure. So if you want to follow along with any of that, yeah, Expedition 16610. Okay. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time tonight, you know, out on the shore of the lake with that watch <laughs> not too far away, just waiting for you when it when eventually you'll, you'll pull that thing up. And, and we're really looking forward to that happening. So until then, you know, keep the faith. Um, it's a great story and really appreciate you spending time on the dog watch describing, you know, what you do professionally, but also this amazing watch story. So thanks a lot, Tom. Really appreciate you joining us. Thank you for having me on. Yeah, it's been fun. Thanks again to Tom for helping us understand his incredibly unique life in the stunt world and his inspiring story of looking for his lost Rolex. We wish him luck as he continued to search and believe that he will ultimately prevail. Our music credit today is Whiskey on the Mississippi by Kevin McLeod, courtesy of Creative Commons. Until our next shift, this is Michael Canfield thanking you for joining us on The Dog Watch.